Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we hear from a nurse who came back to the bedside after burnout, plus glaucoma. What is it and why does it matter? And is it true that all men want sex all the time? I don't think so. Do you struggle with your weight? We're weighing in on that too. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Well, it is that day, isn't it? That daylight savings time. Or is it saving time? Of course it's daylight saving time. Just wondering if you're awake there. Just checking you out. Anyway, um, it's that time of year where we spring forward. To be honest with you, personally, I prefer bouncing back, (laughs) falling back. In the fall, we lose an hour. Um... We lost an hour, I should say. See how tired I am tonight? Anyway, already in just that little hour can certainly impact you and your decisions, your cognition. It's associated with fatal car accidents because they spike the Monday after daylight savings time in spring, according to research and surveys. So what exactly is daylight saving time and why are we doing it? Well, it was the bright idea of Ben Franklin, uh, and it was a a way to actually uh, save energy, conserve energy. So, you know, it's typically in March, we all prepare. Well, not all of us, not all of Canada actually uh, adheres to or changes their clocks. Saskatchewan doesn't, the Yukon, the Peace, that Peace River region, there's a few other areas in British Columbia, which are, their names are escaping me at the moment. But, um, so not everybody does this. And so those people I imagine are less tired than the rest of us. Um, And not every part of the U.S. makes a switch either. And every year at this time, when we are reminded that Ben Franklin decided this might be a good cost-saving measure, so that and the reason that they did that or that he thought that was because he wanted to create extra daylight hours during the summer months. And the practice was actually first implemented in the U.S. and Europe to save energy costs during World War One, and then it was reinstated during World War II. And in 1966, the Uniform Time Act was established, and that was across the, the U.S. And here we are in Canada doing the exact same thing. And you know, we're always talking about whether we should be changing our clocks. There's certainly a number of reasons not to do so. I actually don't mind the longer day in the days in the summertime, but it does have an impact on on one's sleep. And there's a number of health issues that can actually be impacted by um, daylight savings time. Do I sound tired tonight or what? <laughs> anyway, there are so many surprising ways that this one hour and the shorter days can affect your brain. And, you know, the jury's out, you know, you may not be able to, or I should say the, the horse is out of the barn already because we turned the clock back, the clocks back last night. Um, and so you didn't get that prep time. If you didn't know that you should have started going to bed 15 minutes earlier, a few nights uh, this past week to prep your body for that change in circadian or that impact on your circadian rhythm. Um, but there are certainly still some things that you can do this week. And I'm going to go, I'm going to be reviewing those shortly. So we're just coming off of those shorter winter days. That means less light exposure, and that causes changes to your circadian rhythm. Our body, including all of our organs, is aligned to match the environment. It's actually a beautiful orchestra. 
and it's in symphony in combination everything works together so a disruption to that circadian rhythm can affect many functions in your body and some things that might impact you and, and this is just to give you a little insight into how you might be or how might how you might behave during this time of year but the the shorter days can affect your brain in different ways and you might have noticed this um in the past over the winter your changes in metabolism less access to natural light your brain sends signals to your body to conserve energy slowing down your metabolism and increasing your hunger sometimes people put on a little bit of weight uh during the winter time um certainly hunkering down and we're going to be talking about weight a little bit later on in the program um and so we're going to have more light because the darkness actually decreases your levels of serotonin and dopamine in your brain and that can lead to emotional shifts and it actually can lead to depression melatonin which helps to regulate circadian rhythm is produced in darkness or dim light conditions and when melatonin is overproduced during darker days people can feel more lethargic so theoretically when you have um more light you can actually feel a little bit more energetic but you might feel more energetic at the end of the day and because you're missing out on that morning light at this time of year or we're coming up to the time of year where you're missing out on that morning light during the darker times people may experience um, situational affective disorder as well. And so there are certainly ways that um, you might notice things are a little bit different for you during this time. You might start out that week. I know that I'm looking at an early morning tomorrow and I'll be starting out that week with um, a little bit less sleep because we had to spring forward. And so I actually need a couple more hours in my day. And, and I think there's a lot of, of women and moms out there who can feel my pain and um, that, you know, they would like a few more hours in the day as well. We find ourselves multitasking and, and that kind of thing. And just that loss of that one hour can really impact your cognition. It can impact your wake, wakeful state. Um, it can impact your thought process. It can impact your mood. Um, and so it's no, it's not easy for a lot of people. And we may not actually realize that, um, you know, especially sleep. Sleep is so important um, for people. And that spring forward, you know, is also not just associated with um, decreased sleep or uh, disturbed sleep or broken sleep, but it's also associated with an increased risk of heart attacks, strokes, and mood disturbances, which I, I mentioned earlier. And in the long term, daylight saving has also been associated with heart disease and diabetes. So there's so much that it can be, that it can impact. Um, and, you know, there's been so many studies that have been done and every year we have this conversation and then we seem to forget about it as we have, you know, the longer days of summer and we, and we enjoy those dog days of summer. We're talking about uh, daylight saving time and the impact it can have on your body and your health and your mood and your mind, your relationships too, I would imagine. But now I would like to talk about what you can do about it. You've already missed the mark here. If you didn't prep a few nights before, we turn the clocks forward, but don't 
fear not. There's other things that you can do. It can take the body up to a week or more to adjust to this time change. And so until then falling asleep and waking up later can be harder for you. But if you're getting seven to eight hours of sound sleep and go to bed a little early, you might a little earlier than you normally do, you might wake up feeling refreshed. And if you're not waking up feeling refreshed, that's actually a very good sign that maybe you should go and see a sleep doctor or have a sleep study done because sleep is critical. So how do we cope with the daylight saving time? You know, one way is to start going to bed earlier. And, you know, who doesn't want to do this? Get into bed. I mean, I think it's a great thing. It's one of my favorite places in the entire world is bed. <laughs> Always has been. I'm a great sleeper. I love sleep. But I do notice that it's a little bit different at this time of year, and I might be just a little bit more tired. You also just want to be consistent, you know, ha with consistent routines, try and get up and, and go to sleep at the same time uh, each night. You also, you know, enjoy these longer evenings that we're looking ahead to. That's, you know, something that uh, should be treasured. But, you know, the sun, especially where I live, the sun is up, honestly, in our bedroom till about 11 o'clock at night in some of those, uh, some of those nights in June with a Southwest exposure. And so it's kind of hard to go to sleep. Even the blackout blinds don't work that well. Um, but you know, it's also to be enjoyed, but you know, what? You, you do tend to stay up a little bit later when the evenings are long and the weather is warm. It's also my favorite time of year. So now, you know, my favorite place and my favorite time of year, exercise, exercise, exercise. I cannot stress this enough. Even if you walk 11 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, 10,000 steps, whatever it is, it is going to benefit you from a health perspective. And, you know, don't, if you're just starting to exercise, don't go out there and, you know, hit all the machines or start hiking, you know, heading up a mountain. What you want to do is to start slowly and, you know, even start with walking and then, you know, maybe add on the walking poles and then maybe start to lift a few weights. Um, you know, very, very important that exercise and probably a good idea to do it earlier in the day than later on in the evening. And, and don't actually try to eat whatever you can and then think, oh, I'm just going to exercise it off. It just doesn't work that way. You really have to be mindful of what and when you eat and drink and all year long, it doesn't matter. So exercise is not going to take those pounds off. If you overeat, have, having that bread in the restaurant, we're back to restaurant eating. Um, have eating bread and the butter. And, you know, in the wintertime, we have a tendency to crave those carbs. And in the summertime, it's a little bit less because of, of daylight saving and the warmer days. And, you know, so very, very important to, to be very mindful of a healthy, clean, nutritious diet. Also caffeine, alcohol, be very mindful about um, how much you're consuming. In the summer, we have a tendency to increase that consumption publicly anyway. <laughs> Privately, you might be drinking more in the wintertime all by yourself. That's not a good thing either. But, you know, alcohol really has an impact on the brain, a negative impact on the brain. It can ne negatively impact sleep. It's a depressant. Um, people can get addicted to it. It's a socially acceptable substance, but, you know, oftentimes way more people have issues with it than, than they realize. And, you know, I, I see a lot of people living the sober life these days on, on 
Instagram and on social media. And, you know, they show pictures of before and after and like what a difference that, you know, after they've stopped drinking for two or three months, a lot of people are probably coming off the dry January and the dry February as well. You might want to continue that habit throughout, you know, there's a little bit of a trend going on um, about alcohol. So really be mindful of just how much alcohol you drink and, and how do you feel, you know, if you're, how do you feel when you're, drinking and hung over the next day and you have to go to work or get up with the kids, you know, it's not easy or having difficulty in relationships. Anyway, take a look at how much you consume. You also want to reduce that screen time. You know, it's, it's not great for your relationships and it's not great for, um, you know, sleep. It can have an impact on your sleep. You don't want to be on um, your devices two to three hours before you go to bed. Certainly don't take them into the bedroom. There's other things to do in the bedroom. Don't take long naps during the day. Shutting your eyes midday is tempting, especially during this week. And especially if you're feeling sluggish, but avoiding naps is critical for adjusting to the time change. As long as daytime naps could make it harder for you to get a full night's sleep, you know, as long, uh, daytime naps is what I mean. Not as long as, um, but you know what? I do love a nap. And I have to say, I don't really know um, what time of year. I'm going to have to be a little bit more mindful myself. But when I take a nap, I actually get a better night's sleep that night. So I think some people can, that can happen for some people. But a lot of people say, I'm so tired. I don't want to take a nap because I won't fall asleep. But I always found for myself and even for my children, same deal. <laughs> they took a nap, they slept better at night. And so, you know what? Try it. I say, you can try anything. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You can, you can change your mind. But I like to try lots of different things. But if you do have to take a nap, the advice is to take a short nap, take it earlier in the day and no longer than 20 minutes. And, and don't forget about ca caffeine as well. Put down that coffee and the caffeinated beverages, I would say, I don't know, 10 hours, 12 hours before you go to bed. But the recommendation is four to six hours before bedtime. Alcohol, as I mentioned, is negative impact on, on the brain, but it also prohibits you from getting quality sleep, as does caffeine beverages. So like coffee, like coffee and a lot of the um, sodas and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's also good for adults to have bedtime routines. Not They're just not for kids. They're for adults as well. You got to establish good sleep hygiene habits. Before bed, slow your body down. Raising your body's core temperature can make it harder to sleep. So avoid heavy workouts within a few hours of your bedtime. As I mentioned, put your phone away, your computer, your tablet away, and, and turn toward your partner if you have one. If you're in a relationship, you want to turn off the television, start talking again pick up a great book. I happen to be reading a great book right now myself. It's called The Maid. It's a New York Times bestseller. I think it might be number one. Anyway, it's I love it. It's a great little book. Anyway, um, the electronics, the high density, the high intensity light, sorry, stimulates your brain and hinders melatonin. And that's a hormone that triggers sleepiness. So you want to stay consistent with your routines in the day and the amount of sleep that you get every night helps as well. And that includes weekends too. Lots of people sleep in on weekends. That might sound like a great idea, especially on Friday night, but it can certainly disrupt your sleep cycle. And once again, the bed is only to be used for sleeping and, you know, maybe one other, one or two other activities, but your mind adjusts to the habit of getting into bed for sleep. So very important this week, be mindful, be very careful 
very important to follow your doctor's recommendations in terms of weight. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking a little bit about that later on in the program, um, especially a new medication that has not been approved for weight loss, but a lot of people are using it for weight loss. Um, so be careful this week and just curious, text me, let me know what you think about daylight saving time. Should we change that? Um, or should we keep it exactly the way it is? Are you sleepy uh, typically during this week? Do you notice a change in your mood? Do you notice a change in, in your desire for sleep? Do you notice a change in your cognition, your mental acuity? What are some of the things that you notice about yourself? You know, insight is one of the greatest gifts ever. So, so important um, to have insight into yourself. On the third anniversary where many cities shut down and even more businesses shuttered due to COVID-19, we have to look at the fallout from the pandemic. And one of the biggest travesties was that which affected healthcare workers. Healthcare workers became burnt out, understandably so. Capacity was double the rate. Staffing shortages were rampant. The people who are the closest to the bedside and the most prolific at the bedside are registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, and care aides, nurses in general. Many nurses experienced burnout. It's not the first time that they have experienced burnout. Healthcare workers and nurses are prone to burnout. What exactly is burnout? Burnout is a widespread phenomenon characterized by a reduction in nurses' energy that manifests in emotional exhaustion lack of motivation, and feelings of frustration. It may lead to reductions in work efficacy. This, the term burnout actually has its roots in the addiction world. When there was a physician who went to the East Village in New York City to help addicts, and he noticed symptoms in himself and signs in himself and his workers, his colleagues, that were very similar to those that addicts experienced and the term burnout was born. A psychologist in the 80s expanded on that, Dr. Macklock, and she actually created, with her another colleague, created the MBI, basically the nurse, the burnout inventory. It's not just for nurses, but we are focusing on nurses tonight. It also can apply to healthcare workers, firefighters, anybody who is on the front lines and really anybody can experience burnout. Here to talk to me tonight about burnout is a registered nurse who has experienced burnout herself. She has turned that into goodness and she's now a well-being coach for burnt out nurses. She guides exhausted nurses to transform burnout so that they don't just survive, they thrive. Joining me on the line from Pennsylvania is Ann Brown. Good evening, Ann. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining the program tonight. This is just such an important subject. Because of burnout, we have lost so many healthcare workers, not to mention nurses as well, um, in particular, because nurses make up such a large part of the healthcare system. So first and foremost, what exactly is burnout and what are the symptoms that people experience when they become burnt out? Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned um, all the, the stuff with the, the stats and some of the stuff that comes out with the, the actual research that's out there. 
I just want to start out with 95% of nurses in a survey from 2021 have thought about leaving the profession. Um, so that's majority of us that are like, we kind of want out of this. And a lot of that comes from these feelings of burnout where we don't know how to process our stress. We're kind of feeling like we're stuck. And, and that's something where stress turns into to burnout. So stress kind of starts out with more of this feeling irritated, feeling worried. We're kind of ants up, you know, if you got that fight or flight um, going and the adrenaline is rushing, your mind's racing, and then you go home and you can't sleep. Uh, you have some anxiety, and it's more of a physical kind of thing that goes on. When you kind of transition into burnout, stress and burnout are kind of intertwined. Burnout itself is when you're getting more disengaged. You're kind of numb. You're like, eh, whatever, right? You're kind of apathetic and cynical, definitely discouraged, unmotivated. You're just physically and mentally exhausted. You end up with that brain fog you're not really able to process things. Um, you sleep excessively, but you're actually not feeling refreshed. No motivation, and this is more of an emotional side to it. So, kind of can lead, you know, down the road of depression as well. And there are some workplace things that take place with that, right? Like you have no control. Feel like you don't have any control over it. No recognition or kind of a reward for doing well. A lot of us are feeling right now that we're just underappreciated, right? We started out as superheroes and then we went to zero um, as the pandemic went along. And it's really challenging to be in this emotionally draining environment that's high pressure, it's highly chaotic, and now we're understaffed. We're having supply issues still. Um, so that really is a hard thing to kind of be in all the time. And then some of our lifestyle things that contribute as well, right? We are usually those high achiever go-getters. Some of us have those perfectionist tendencies, that um, type A personality, and we want to help people. We're in there to help people, but sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we have a really hard time helping others if we're not helping ourselves in that process. So kind of leads us to that point of burnout where we're completely exhausted. We're you know, detached, and a lot of us are just broken at this point. The healthcare system has broken our spirit. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned so much in there. It's just so rich with what, with what has gone wrong um, or has been revealed in the healthcare <laughs> system. You know, the nurse-patient ratio. Yeah. Something else, I was speaking to a nurse recently in my practice, and and she was saying how she would go home and and she was wondering if she had changed the settings on particular pumps, if she had turned something off, if she had, you know, turned her patient at the right time. She was questioning and, and thinking back and, and wondering, and, you know, did she contribute to the death of a patient? And she had so many concerns, so many worries. And, you know, so that's the emotional part. And, and I often think then the physical part is that oftentimes nurses are expected to work, you know, 16 hours, extend their shifts. They're already working 12 hours, which is a long day, especially in a pandemic. And then because nobody came in to relieve them, they're expected to work another four hours or five hours, or there's forced overtime and it's physically exhaustion, exhausting. And I feel like nurses are depleted. I feel like a very good word for, mm -hmm. for this is depleted. And what are some of the actual feelings, you know, besides that fatigue and, you know, dreading going to work. What are some of the other things that nurses might feel? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to 
like the you mentioned dread is a good word to it just like uh do i have to go in and do this again and it's all that constant negative that we're kind of swimming into right like one person does one thing and we react at a habit of we've got the bells all going off so it's a lot of that fatigue that comes from that as well so you're feeling like you're you know in this constant go 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 like you know survival mode and trying to juggle all these things uh, we're at ratios right now of one to seven on my med search floor, and I'm like, okay, I'm responsible for eight people right now, my, you know, myself and my seven patients, plus, you know, whatever's going on in my home life. Uh, it's a lot to kind of keep all that balance. So those feelings It, it certainly of- is. You make a, such a great point because women are often the doing the lion's share of the child care right. and the housework at home, and they actually can't um work remotely that was something that nurses are unable to do during the pandemic but does it affect um appetite and sleep for example right yeah yeah i was kind of um leading into like we don't have we feel like we don't have control over anything uh right we don't have time to take our our lunch breaks we don't have time to to actually get those meals in so a lot of our meals are happening on the way home and then we're binge eating so we're craving those carb foods because we've got the cortisol levels you know everything's pumping through our body uh, lack of sleep of stress itself you kind of got that go mode and you can't get out of it and you can't slow down you can't turn off your brain and then if you slip into kind of that burnout side you actually are sleeping but you're still kind of racing through everything in your mind my guest is Ann Brown. She's a well-being coach. She helps nurses prevent and treat burnout. And thanks so much for staying on the line. And this is something you yourself experienced, and you turned that negative experience into something good. And now you coach other nurses and help them to prevent burnout and to actually treat it. Tell me a little bit about your story. What happened to you? Yeah, um, surprisingly, um, I did well during the pandemic because my burnout happened uh, 2018 is when I hit my rock bottom day, or I call it my pay attention day. I'd had stressful events going on at work and at home. We had a crazy winter day where I was working, and if you can imagine looking out the window, seven floors up, and you can't see anything but white, wall of white. Snow stresses me out. I was at work having a stressful day with missions and things happening. I was hangry. I didn't get my lunch break. There was a lot of things happening all at once. And then a couple weeks later, had more stressful events going on, physical things that were um, coming up, having the fact where I was drinking and tripled like the amount of water I was drinking in a day. So I had a day where, you know, it started out like many of the other days, challenging patient assignments, Um, And I always ask myself, why did I become a nurse again? Why am I doing this? But that was the first of many many of these days of uh, feeling really dizzy and lightheaded. And, you know, I'm a nurse. It's just this work-related stress. I'll survive. I'll get through it. Well, that day, uh, I didn't get through it. I got about an hour and a half into my shift. I was so dizzy. I could not get out of the chair, um, holding on to our med carts in the rooms. I'm like, this is not going to work for the next you know, 10 hours. So ended up leaving that day. Um, my vitals were, were off. My heart rate was high. My blood pressure was high. I was like drenched in sweat. It was all those physical things coming out. And 
as you said, it's the profession, right? We put the needs of everyone else first, and that's when I, I hit that burnout. I didn't recognize it as burnout until about six months ago, though. Uh, you know, I'm pushing through everything, juggling everything in my life, all those responsibilities. I was overcommitting to things and got to the point where I just pushed myself to exhaustion. So I had all these physical symptoms, I had emotional symptoms, and it eventually kind of consumed me um, with everything. So ended up that a whole process of a whole bunch of tests and seeing a whole lot of doctors and, um, you know, God putting the right people in my path. I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder, diagnosed with a dysautonomia, which is the dizziness part of it. Um, and some other um, health issues. But for me, that was the thing. All this stress and burnout that I did not process and I had no skills on how to process it turned into a physical health issue. Um, my body, it started breaking down essentially because I didn't ever relax. I didn't take that time to, to process what was going on. Um, I say all the time, nursing and healthcare, we have... PTSD, we see traumas, we have grief, and we put on our professional mask and move on to the next patient because that's what our profession mm -hmm. does. That's the cultural norm right now, uh, and that's where I'm at with this. I really want to get it out there that, you know, at least one nurse at a time, like, yes, that's the way we've kind of dealt with this. It's a survival pattern in nursing, but it's killing us all very slowly, and this is a pandemic. The, the numbers of people leaving the profession, those that are having health issues, survey my floor, I'd say a third of us have an autoimmune disorder of some um, some sort, most likely because of stress. Wow, that's incredible. Now, was it a long period of time leading up to your day of reckoning, your day of awakening, that you were dealing with stressors? It, or was it uh, a lot in a very short amount of time? Uh, both. I always said it's, it's been acute on chronic stress. When I, hindsight, of course, look back, I've never dealt with stress very well, you know, through my childhood into high school, into to college. I put a lot of pressures on myself and those perfectionist tendencies, people-pleasing tendencies, and then get into nursing. And I cried every day for six months when I first started. Every day I'd leave and I'd, I'd cry. It was so much stress and pressure on myself. Um, my whole nursing career has been nothing but but self, a lot of it self-induced stress and then, of course, the profession. Um, but it was probably a good three months prior where it literally was one stress after another. So I'm like super uh, intense things that had happened um, at work mostly. And that whole environment kind of was just a trigger for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I've, I've experienced nurse burnout myself or maybe life burnout <laughs> um, because it's, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's everything that's going on in your life. And, and as you say, we tend to be giving nurturing people and, you know, we can handle mm -hmm. it. We can take care of it. We can take care of everything mm -hmm. for everybody. I often call myself type E, <laughs> everything to everyone. Yeah, you can have it. Um, mm -hmm you know, versus type A, but, you know, there's all sorts of different types that we have and, and, you know, certain stressors come our way or, um, I can't even say that certain stressors came my way, although there was toxicity in the workplace. Um, but mm -hmm. in terms of just, you know, managing life with kids and jobs and travel and family and, you know, just trying to, trying to do it all. And then, 
having to take a step back and, and actually retreating, recoiling and just saying, Hey, this is not, I've got to set some limits and boundaries. This is not going to work. So how do you help nurses? What, what would you say to the nurse out there who's experiencing burnout um, right now? Yeah, the kind of the biggest thing is you don't have to stay where you're at. Uh, for a really long time, I thought I was stuck in kind of that survival mode and I couldn't get off the hamster wheel, if you will. And that might be kind of what you, similar to what you experienced. Like, I just got to keep my head above water and keep going uh, and it'll all work itself out. You don't have to stay stuck in that mode. You have a choice. And that was something that was the aha moment for me. Uh, you know, either I kind of stay where I'm at, keep muscling through things with my health having an issue, or I make a choice and figure out how I make my life better. So that was kind of the first thing. And then the the next part of that is kind of assessing what's going on. We're all great at assessing as a nurse, right? We First thing we learn is a head-to-toe assessment. Do a head-to-toe assessment of your life, right? What's going well? We always want to start out with the positive. What is going well in my life? And then we want to look at what's not going well. And then we have to look at kind of exploring what the next steps are. And that's like, what do I want instead? What could this be? And what can I um, do to get myself there? So awareness, and once you get that awareness, then you can actually act on all that and actually pivot your life and figure out what that next step is uh, moving forward for you. A lot of it is the self-care practices. I, um, in my program, uh, talk about self-care, which is more the physical, and then the soul care, which is more your spiritual, emotional well-being as well. Absolutely. And then again, I, I do love questionnaires because I think sometimes if we assess ourselves, we can have a bias. Oh, it's not that bad. But if you fill out a, a, a questionnaire like the Maslach Burnout Inventory, which we don't ask questions about your emotional health and your, you know, feeling responses and your, you know, relates to depersonalization and, and measuring feelings of competence. It can be helpful as well. And it's always wonderful to have you. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn uh, and all my links are there. If, uh, if you want to reach out to me at uh, heal thyself coaching 44 at gmail.com. Um, I do have a very similar um, burnout quiz. If you want to know where you are on the road to burnout, um, hop on LinkedIn and the quiz is, is on there for you guys to take and kind of see where you are, gauge where you are and where you need to potentially make that first step. Joining me on the line is ahead of World Glaucoma Week is Doug Purdy. Doug Purdy has experienced glaucoma himself and he is ready and willing to share his story. Good evening, Doug. Good evening, Maureen. Nice Thank you so much you. for joining. Yeah, lovely to have you on the program. Um, so you have experienced glaucoma yourself, and we'll get to your story shortly, but but for the listeners, can you please tell them what exactly glaucoma is? I don't think a lot of people know or, or understand it. Well, glaucoma is uh, high pressure so that it creates a pressure on the eye that one feels, uh, and it uh, is uncomfortable to painful. Now, there's not one kind of glaucoma. There are five different kinds of glaucoma. Uh, Open angle, angle closure glaucoma, normal tension glaucoma. There's also 
glaucoma in children and pigmentary glaucoma. So there's a variety of different kinds of glaucoma. My personal, my particular uh, glaucoma is open angle glaucoma. And uh, that came as a byproduct of also having uh, both dry and wet macular degeneration. So I had the... uh, Yes, so... And uh, it's uh, also known as uh, the silent thief because it isn't readily recognizable depending on the kind of uh, glaucoma that you have. And it, uh, if it gets too far advanced without you recognizing the sim- symptoms, then a lot of people will find that it's so far progressed that uh, their vision can either only partially be saved or not saved at all. So that's one of the uh, difficult things about about glaucoma is uh, its uh, identity for specialists, optometrists, and ophthalmologists to identify. And that's why it's so important for uh, people to get regular eye examinations because uh, it is during these examinations that it can be picked up early enough depending on the type of glaucoma that you have. Mm -hmm. And prevention is key. You mentioned that. And especially with one's sight, we want to preserve our sight. And you mentioned that it's difficult because a lot of people, a lot of healthcare providers don't understand the symptoms or some of the signs of glaucoma. What are some of those early signs of glaucoma? Well, the early signs of glaucoma in my particular case uh, was the eye pressure. And uh, it also, you feel as if your eyeballs are uh, almost bursting from your, from your head simply because of the pressure. So that yeah. in a dream form, of course, it's very painful. And uh, it uh, ought to have gotten your attention well before that, uh, before one, uh, if if you were that far along, then you'd want to have gotten to a specialist far before then uh, to be able to get an assessment as to what what your problem was, and and assuming it would have been glaucoma. It might be... And in your case... Right, but in your case, did you have symptoms before that eye pain, and did that eye pain, that eyeball pain, come on suddenly? It came on, well, that's the the interesting part about glaucoma. It came on gradually, and fortunately, in my particular case, uh, I was getting eye injections for my wet macular degeneration, Mm. and had to get these injections monthly, and it was, I had known that I had dry macular degeneration, which then progressed to wet macular degeneration, but I didn't know about the glaucoma until uh, the regular examinations in preparation for my eye injections, where they do take my eye pressure, uh, that the glaucoma was detected. So if you don't have those other eye conditions, that's when it can be particularly tricky and dangerous. And that's why one should regularly go to the optometrist or the ophthalmologist if you have one 
to do regular checkups at least annually and the older you get because uh, glaucoma is often age related uh, so that uh, you can have it detected as at the earliest uh, uh, place possible. Mm -hmm. And at what age do people typically get diagnosed with glaucoma? Uh, the typical age is in the 50s to 60s, so that mm -hmm. uh, it's around those age, ages that it begins to uh, manifest itself. Uh, and uh, it's, that's the point, of course, when uh, one should begin to regularly get the eye tests and the, mm -hmm. the pressure tests to be able to have the comfort that uh, you don't have the glaucoma and uh, that it can be picked up at the earliest stage possible. We are talking about a very eye-opening subject right now. I've learned a tremendous amount in the short time that I've had my guest, Doug Purdy, on to talk about glaucoma and the importance of eye exams and some of the diseases that can occur. Doug, thanks so much for staying with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Now, Doug, you oh. were diagnosed with glaucoma. There's a number of different types of glaucoma, which you mentioned, but you also talked a little bit about macular degeneration, and that was really the pathway to you receiving a diagnosis about, of glaucoma. And in, yes. in some ways, I would say you were pretty lucky that you caught it early, and I think that's really important. You've made that great point that it's important to have eye exams and to catch this early. But can you explain to the listeners what exactly macular degeneration is and the difference between dry and wet? Uh, well, macular degeneration is exactly as it's described. It is the degeneration of the macula of the eye, unlike glaucoma, which is a group of eye conditions that damage the optic nerve. The optic nerve is uh, the nerve that sends the visual information from your eye to your brain and is vital to good vision. And damage to the optic nerve is often related to high pressure uh, in your eye, whereas the uh, uh, macular degeneration is literally the degeneration of the little pixels, if you will, in the eye that uh, are like in the old TV screens where you had little pixels. And if the lights went out, that just meant that that, that, that light could no longer be transmitted through that pixel. And it's the same mm -hmm. principle or idea for your eyes as far as macular degeneration is concerned. So what I have in dry, in the dry macular degeneration is the actual gradual deterioration of the vision as, it, as it's impacted uh, in, in the macula. Whereas the wet macular degeneration is when the blood vessels in the eye begin to break and it, uh, the uh, degeneration of sight is escalated because of th these broken blood vessels. And that's uh, at a very serious state where you really need immediate intervention. So uh, uh, the d distinction between the two is dry macular degeneration is gradual and wet macular degeneration is a rapidly uh, evolving disorder. So, and, and, then, and with both of them, can you potentially, yeah. sorry about that, can you potentially lose your sight? 
uh, in all three, whether it's glaucoma, dry, or wet macular degeneration, all three are sight-threatening or sight-destroying. So Mm -hmm. I was fortunate in my particular case because of uh, it being identified, especially the wet macular degeneration, uh, I, and uh, the doctor provided a what's called a Mansler grid, which I referred to. It was by my bedside table daily, and I referred to that, and that's where I began to see, first of all, the gradual uh, erosion of my sight, and then mm. uh, I experienced uh, the wavy lines in the road one day when I was driving that took me directly to my uh, doctor about the wet macular degeneration and I was fortunate to be able to get the monthly eye injections which I do every month for the wet macular degeneration and once uh, diagnosed with glaucoma it was eye drops uh, which are uh, uh, very effective in uh, maintaining the pressure in the eye to avoid the escalation of the glaucoma uh, to uh, avoid uh, blindness. So, uh-huh. you know, prevention is worth a pound of cure. So it, what I would say to people is, you know, be aware of any symptoms that you're experiencing in your eyes. Uh, be very assertive. Don't sit around and go, oh, well, you know, I should do something about it, but, oh, well, I don't want to bother about it. Get to somebody right away, whether the optometrist or, or ophthalmologist or to your uh, family doctor if you need a referral to to uh, either one, uh, and uh, to get an assessment. The other biggie is uh, if you are prescribed uh the very effective eye drops that are available on the market, many through AbbVie, for example, then, uh, and I take them daily, morning and evening, uh, is uh, to be compliant. Because what happens is that uh, um, many people aren't compliant with their medications, so when there's a byproduct of that, then the disease progresses. You really have to be diligent about uh, setting up a routine for yourself to be able to remember, because we all get busy, or we and we all get, uh, at my age, almost 82, you get forgetful and so on. But if you get your routine done, then you'll make sure that you are taking your medication daily, for the glaucoma in particular, and uh, got to be persistent. Uh, and consistent, be your own advocate. Don't wait around for somebody to help you. Uh, you mentioned two great sources of information through Fighting Blindness Canada, uh, and they are doing exceptional work in uh, uh, funding and underwriting research uh, on many eye conditions. Uh, and if you have a computer, just go online and look up glaucoma. Uh, there's many... Uh, sites there that uh, are available to you with considerable information. Uh, And of course, there is your optometrist and ophthalmologist, uh, and don't be afraid to ask them as many questions as you may have about your condition, because it's absolutely essential 
that you keep yourself well informed about yourself because it is your health, your future. Absolutely. And I, I didn't realize that 1.2 million Canadians live with vision loss and, and Fighting Blindness Canada is bringing hope to those living and impacted by blindness, helping to move critical research forward and advocating for access to new treatments. Now, you mentioned that you're 82. I'm shocked. <laughs> you sound a lot younger, Doug. Um, but what age were you diagnosed? Head. I beg your pardon? I said I am in my head. A lot younger. We're all we're all younger in our heads, <laughs> um, um, and you're younger in your vision as well. <laughs> so, um, but how old were you when you were diagnosed? How long have you been living with this? Uh, for the uh, dry macular de degeneration in my sixties, uh, early sixties, uh, in the wet macular degeneration, about two thousand and nine, two thousand and uh, and in the glaucoma, 2011. So I've been managing this and have blessed with the availability of excellent drugs uh, that uh, for the wet macular degeneration and the excellent drugs uh, in the form of eye drops to manage the uh, glaucoma. And going back to Fighting Blindness Canada, I am a monthly donor to Fighting Blindness Canada for all of the fabulous research that they do. And I'm very honored to be uh, part of uh, their, uh, uh, let's say, I'm one of the little of many helpers in donating to them to make sure that the ongoing research occurs to uh, catch as many people as possible who are suffering loss of sight uh, and uh, who may be prevented from loss of sight. And you're doing such an amazing job. And Fighting Blindness Canada or fightingblindness.ca has so much information on eye diseases, new treatments and clinical trials. So people may want to enter clinical trials. There's genetic testing around it. There's information if you've been newly diagnosed and a number of other resources you can get involved with this organization. It's fantastic. You're an amazing advocate for uh, Fighting Blindness Canada and for all of those people in Canada living with vision loss or living with eye diseases such as glaucoma and even macular degeneration or other eye diseases that can lead to blindness. And uh, I really appreciate you coming onto the program. So if you had some words of wisdom to somebody out there who's questioning their sight or questioning that they might have a little pressure or they're late on their appointment to their ophthalmologist or optometrist, what words of wisdom would you have for them? Uh, the word of wisdom, and I know, I know it's so difficult today with uh, many professionals being overbooked, but uh, be assertive and get an appointment as quickly as possible. Don't wait uh, around uh, to see how it's going. Be your own best friend in terms of taking care of your eyesight because uh, we have uh, one pair of eyes and it's absolutely essential that they receive the best care from us possible. And I also want to say thanks to programs like yours that are getting the word out that are very helpful to people who are listeners uh, about eyesight. So thank you for your oh, well, you're very well. That's 
that's very generous and very kind of you to say. It's been a, a bit of an education segment for me, I have to say. I, I really appreciate um, learning a little bit more about glaucoma and uh, macular degeneration, as well as about the fabulous resources that are available for people out there from Fighting Blindness Canada. The website is fightingblindnesscanada.ca and then a, the Glaucoma in Perspective or the GIP app. And so you can check that out on Apple at the Apple store. Anyway, Doug Purdy, thank you so much for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Maureen. Take care. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Last week, we touched a little bit upon low sexual desire in men, but I want to dive a little deeper into it and uh, review some of the causes around low sexual desire. You know, it is natural to sometimes lose interest in sex. We always think that, or the, the, con the conventional wisdom is that all men want sex all the time, but that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it's natural to lose interest in sex for men and for women, but long-term low libido may have an underlying cause. And, you know, it can stem from things like low testosterone. Your testosterone levels, guys, is the highest in your teens, and then it starts to reduce. And, you know, so you want to actually make sure that your testosterone level levels are within normal range. Um, certain things can impact low, uh, testosterone levels. So you definitely want to have that checked, especially starting at around age 40, 45. Something else that may have an impact on libido for men is lack of sleep. And, you know, a lot of people have sleep problems in this country and, um, and lack of sleep leads to low sexual desire. It can impact relationships. And, and so it's definitely something that you want to address. And depression is, is something else. You know, I, I heard these two guys talking the other day and, and uh, I kind of came upon them and I interrupted them, not really interrupted them. I didn't do it on purpose or anything, but they said, you know, we were just sharing our feelings, Maureen. <laughs> I was like, that is awesome <laughs> because rarely do you hear, I actually think they were joking with me, but anyway, <laughs> I loved it nonetheless. I can dream, can't I? Um, but you know what? Just the idea of guys sharing their feelings. <laughs> with each other is just so wonderful. Honestly, it's, it's amazing. And that, so I'm not, I'm not laughing at it, but I'm just like, you know, that is the world in which we need to live. Because I think when you share your stories and when you express your feelings and you're upset about something and you can resolve it or talk to the person about the issue, instead of keeping it inside, letting it fester or maybe medicating it with drugs or alcohol, you know, we get into a lot of trouble and then that can lead to low sexual desire, maybe even divorce as well. Stress can also impact one's sexual desire as well. And, you know, we all have stress, but we have to learn how to manage our stress in life. And it's, you know, you make a choice. Is this, am I going to let this bother me? Am I going to be right? Or am I going to be happy? Um, you know, how much um, stress do you have? Can you actually lower the amount of stress that you have in your life? Can you take a few things off your plate? Do you overbook? Are you somebody that overschedules? Do you have so much on your plate that you just can't manage? And then, then life happens, something that was unplanned happens? Or are you a perfectionist? Everything has to go a certain way and you have a plan in life and then that doesn't work out. I mean, so we really have to look at how we're managing stress in this country. And, you know, we really have to bring that conversation forward because it is a very important one because people can behave very 
differently when they're stressed. And, you know, it's, you may not have done something if you weren't stressed, you may not have acted in a certain way or not, not that it's an excuse. I don't mean to say that, but it's a very good idea to manage those stress levels. The other thing I touched upon already a little bit is the substance use, lots of self-medication in this country. Let me tell you, um, because it's socially acceptable, number one. People feel if they have low self-esteem, which can also impact a person's sexual desire. But if you have low self-esteem, sometimes using substances might make you feel better about yourself. You might be more relaxed, more, you feel like, you know, you have less social anxiety. You can talk to that person at the party, or you can, you know, get on the golf course and, you know, you, you might, um, you know, a couple of beers and you might be relaxed and, Whole in one baby. Anyway, um, you know, things just might, um, you feel like it might be better for you or you, your life goes a little bit better, but then your life tanks actually, <laughs> if you continue to drink or if you drink daily or nightly, as one of my patients said, um, if you're a daily drinker or you're, you're consuming more and more as time goes on. And of course, as time goes on, it affects your brain. It affects your, um, ability, your mobility, it can impact falls and fractures. So how did we get away from low sex drive? Anyway, getting back to that, if changes in your sex drive are a concern for you, you might want to speak to your physician because they can offer more guidance or at least provide you with a referral to a sex therapist, um, somebody who understands uh, sexual function and sexual dysfunction. There are lots of people in this country that are in this particular type of practice. I happen to be in the practice myself. Um, there's no end to people who have issues with this. There's no shame in it. It seems like most patients will ask me, have you ever seen anybody with this issue before? It's like, yes, every single patient I've seen today. Because low libido is, and, and what it actually is, it's a decreased interest in sexual activity. And low libido is very, very common. Close to 40% of women experience it at some point in their lives. And uh, about 20% of men. And as I said, it's common to lose interest from time to time, but there are potential causes of low libido. As I mentioned, the testosterone, we know testosterone is responsible for building muscles and bone ma mass. It stimulates sperm production, but keep in mind, your testosterone levels factor into your sex drive. And so you are considered a man with low um testosterone if your level falls below 300 nanograms per deciliter, so 300 NGs per DL. And that's according to guidelines from the American Urological Association. Urologists deal with sexual dysfunction issues as well. So there's lots of physicians, lots of nurses, lots of sex therapists out there who deal with these, who dare to tread into these waters and deal with this. But you know what? It's like shampoo, honestly. It, it you know, it's just like any other function in your body. It's like your heart. It's like your bladder. It's like your kidneys. It's your, you know, it's your sexual um, function. And, you know, things can go wrong with sexual function. So when your testosterone levels decrease, your desire for sex can also decrease. So you might want to talk to your doctor about that. Medications. Certain medications can lower testosterone levels and that can lead to low libido. So those ACE inhibitors that you might be taking or beta blockers, they may prevent ejaculation and prevent erections as well. And so those are blood pressure um, medications, by the way, so many people are on antihypertensive or blood pressure medications, you know, and, and some, for some people it's genetic, but for a lot of people, I actually met this other guy <laughs> the other day and he, at this particular event that I was attending, but he was telling me that he was, he was quite obese. And, um, he was saying 
he had gone on a particular medication to lose weight, he had found out that his cholesterol was high and that his blood sugar was high. And, um, and he, you know, his weight was obviously quite high. And, you know, so he was, had just been started on antihypertensive medication. And, you know, he was quite concerned um, for his health. And so he wanted to do something and he needed this particular medication, which I'm going to talk about shortly, to actually help him to lose weight even though that medication is not approved in Canada to lose weight. But um, some other medications can lower testosterone levels as well. Chemotherapy, radiation, hormones to treat prostate cancer, corticosteroids, opioid pain relievers like morphine or oxycodone, oxycontin, Percocet, uh, cimetidine, which is typically used for um, gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD. Um, that can also lower testosterone levels, certain antidepressants and anabolic steroids a lot of athletes use those to increase muscle mass. So once again, if you're experiencing the effects of low testosterone, it's related to any of these things, speak to your doctor. It's a good idea. I found this very interesting, restless leg syndrome, and that's the uncontrollable urge to move your legs. And, and according to research, men with restless leg syndrome are at higher risk for developing erectile dysfunction, which can also lead to low sexual desire. Th then so they're at higher risk for developing ED than those without restless leg syndrome. And I've educated you about this before. The definition of erectile dysfunction is the inability to attain and or maintain an erection adequate for penetrative sex. But in this particular study, the researchers discovered that men who had RLS or restless leg syndrome uh, occurrences at least five times a month were about 50% more likely to develop erectile dysfunction than men without restless leg syndrome. And men who had restless leg syndrome episodes more frequently were even more likely to become impotent. So something to consider there. If you have restless leg syndrome and you're having issues with erections, definitely speak to your doctor. Depression changes all aspects of a person's life. And, you know, people with depression experience a reduced or a complete lack of interest in activities that they once found pleasurable. And that can be anything from golf to boating, to skiing, to hiking, to eating. And it also can include sex. And low libido, unfortunately, is also a side effect of the treatment for depression, which is antidepressants. So those those SNRIs um, and the, the SSRIs, like so the, the Prozacs, the Zolofts, they can actually um, lead to low sexual desire as well. So there is one, uh, Wellbutrin hasn't been shown to reduce the libido. So talk to your doctor about that. Um, chronic illness as well, that's something else when you're not feeling well because of a chronic health condition like chronic pain. You know, sex is low on your list of priorities. Other chronic illnesses that I've educated you about is what I show is about prevention, preventing type 2 diabetes, preventing obesity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, chronic lung, heart, kidney, and liver failure. So tune in and you can prevent all of those. <laughs> anyway, and your sex drive will increase for sure. Not to forget sleep. We've been talking a lot about sleep tonight. And a study in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine found that non-obese men with obstructive sleep apnea experience lower testosterone levels. And that can lead to decreased sexual activity and libido. One third of the men who had severe sleep apnea also had reduced levels of testosterone. So in, in another study that I was reviewing, healthy young men 
um, in, in young healthy men, testosterone levels were decreased by 10 to 15% after a week of sleep restriction to five hours per night. Your sleep is critical, guys. And ladies, gentlemen, and they, everybody out there, sleep is so important. Aging, testosterone levels, they decrease as you age. So um, in your older years, it might take a bit longer to experience orgasm, to ejaculate, or to become aroused. Your erections may not be as hard, and it may take a little bit longer for your penis to become erect, but there are medications that can help that as well. We talked a little bit about stress and managing your stress, low self-esteem, how you feel about yourself. You know, you're, you're good. You're just as good as anybody else. Nobody's better. Nobody's worse than you are. But low self-esteem, low confidence, and poor body image can certainly take a toll on your emotional health and well-being. And then the exercise, too much or too little, you know, it, you got to have the right amount. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned, alcohol as well. I wanted to talk to you about a medication that was approved by Health Canada in 2018 for adults with type 2 diabetes to help them manage their blood sugar levels. And But I do want to mention that the medication has not been approved for weight loss in Canada or anywhere else in the world for that matter. But guess what? I hear that they are prescribing it. Doctors are prescribing it like candy. It's called Ozempic. It's semaglutide, it's, and it's sold under the brand names Ozempic, Wigovi, and Ribelsis. It's an anti-diabetic medication used for the treatment of type 2 diabetes and as an anti-obesity medication for long-term weight management. But again, not approved for that. Um, the It acts as a GLP-1 receptor agonist that selectively binds to and activates the GLP-1 receptor, the target for native GLP-1. It lowers fasting and postprandial or after-dinner blood sugar, after-meal blood sugar, by stimulating insulin secretion in a glucose-dependent way. And it mimics a hormone called glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, which plays a role in digestion and your appetite regulation. So it basically, simply put, it causes you to feel full so that you will consume fewer calories. Of course, this is not without side effects. And one of the most ridiculous side effects that I think I saw <laughs> on Instagram, of course, people were complaining because they were saying that there was um, their faces were caving in. But you know what? If you lose a significant amount of weight, and some people can lose 10 to 15% of their body weight, and that's a lot if you weigh 130 pounds, <laughs> and that's who it's being prescribed for. I've seen thin people have this prescribed and obese people as well. I, I've seen it work also on people who it actually needed to work on. So, But as soon as you stop taking it, you start uh, gaining the weight back again, unless you have become accustomed to this new way of eating and you can adhere to that and be disciplined about it as well. So there are other side effects. Oh, the other thing was on Instagram where I saw those people's faces caving in, but you know, you're going to lose weight. You're going to lose it in your face as well. Um, but it was just an excuse for people to get fillers and Botox and um, beef themselves up that way. Take it off one place, put it on another. Um, there was actually uh, one of the, one of the, Hollywood actresses was saying, um, Monica from Friends, I can't think of her, <laughs> her name in real life. Anyway, um, 
Courtney Cox. That's it. There it comes. Okay. Um, it must be that daylight saving time having an effect on my brain. Courtney Cox was saying she'd made a huge mistake in terms of getting all of these fillers over the years. I mean, she's beautiful. Who would want to look like her? But she said she started sort of getting addicted to it and, and you know, she lost perspective on how, how she looked and she actually had a lot of it removed. Um, but getting back to some of the other side effects of Ozempic, you can get gas or flatulence, as we like to say in the medical world. Um, it just sounds so much better than gas. Um, but burping can also occur with Ozempic, but um, they're not the most common digestive side, system side effects. Some of the more common ones include constipation, which is brutal, diarrhea, which is worse, nausea, which is horrible, and vomiting. So certainly going to lose weight with some of those um, symptoms. But you can also have acid reflux or indigestion and upset stomach. It seems to have a lot of negative impact on the gastrointestinal tract. But, you know, for some people, this does seem to be working. And, you know, for people who are obese, people who have high BMIs, BMIs in the, in the 30s, and people who have tried repeatedly, they've tried a variety of different diets um, and trends. Uh, I see a new trend now, which is, um, you know, there's lo all sorts of fad diets out there and, and different suggestions, the grapefruit diet and the vegetable soup diet and, um, you know, all sorts, the stand on your head diet, whatever. But um, there was something I saw on TV. I was kind of surprised at this. It was Metamucil, which is, can be used for constipation or diarrhea, but it was a, it was kind of a, I think they called it the balance and it was to take it for two weeks. It's to make you feel fuller. Same idea as Ozempic. Take a teaspoon, around a teaspoon in a glass of water daily for two weeks um, to kickstart uh, weight loss. Of course, nothing beats weight loss or, you know, beats the ability to lose weight like a clean, healthy, good diet. Eating, you know, during a certain time during the day, not snacking, not you know, loading up on the carbs or the sugars, getting the sugar out of your diet, sugars and everything. Um, but nothing beats that. But there's lots of things that, you know, people swear by, they swear by um, cleanses, that kind of thing. And um, to, to kickstart or to help them to lose weight. But, you know, it is uh, a problem for a lot of people and a lot of people try and they are just unsuccessful. Uh, and they've tried repeatedly. And, and in, in that case, especially when they're at risk for diabetes type 2 and hypertension and cardiovascular disease, when they're at risk for all of those illnesses and, and oftentimes chronic illnesses, and then can also be associated with mobility issues and, and falls and fractures and, you know, your living situation. And, you know, so it can have a, a tremendous domino effect. Ozempic might be something you, that you would want to speak to your doctor about, but go into it, eyes wide open, ask all of your questions, understand the negative impact, the side effects that it could have, the dangers. All medications have a danger, have potential dangers. Um, and so you just want to make sure that you are fully aware of um you know, the issues that uh, Ozempic can cause for you, but it also can potentially change your life because losing weight isn't oftentimes for, for a lot of people, it's not just about diet. It's a psychological, it's emotional, it's mental, it's genetic. So 
Some people need surgery or procedures. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.